I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Parallaxies listeners, apologies for my absence as of late this month. However, I've been dealing with a few health issues. Now, though, I'm getting back into the swing of things. And with Halloween, my favorite holiday right around the corner, I'm glad to report that I'm back in action and I have a few treats for the spooky season that'll hopefully get you into the Halloween spirit. First up, a previously unpublished conversation I had with the film historian David Del Vale, who joined me to talk about his relationships with such noted actors of the horror genre as Vincent Price and Christopher Lee, among others. We'll also talk film history and some rather interesting stories about figures like Zelda Rubinstein, from Poltergeist, and David's experiences doing audio commentaries for a number of classic films. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views, and now on to the conversation with the great film historian David Del Vale. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. Before we continue our conversation on this edition of Parallax Views, I want to notify California listeners of the program about one of our sponsors, the Therapy Practice of Alexander Yu. Yu is an experienced teletherapist since 2008, and he goes by the motto, Flow, adapt, change, as Lao Tzu would say. And he wants to accompany you on your journey of self-improvement. Now, again, this applies to California listeners of the program. Alexander is a licensed psychotherapist and teletherapist. And if you'd like his services, then please contact him at Alexander U. That's Alexander U. Y. O. O. Dot com. And he can be reached by email at therapy at Alexander U. Dot com or by phone at 323-834-9828. That's 323- 8349828 This is only available once again to my California listeners, but if you need anything related to therapy needs, please be sure to contact our sponsor Alexander Yu. 
Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very excited to have on, film historian David Del Val. How are you doing today, David? I'm doing good, and I'm very happy to be doing this show with you because it, the title you're using is one of my favorite conspiracy movies with Warren Beatty. Yeah, Parallax View, Warren Beatty. Parallax yeah. View, one of the great paranoid movies of our time. Yeah, Parallax View, and the other one I know people like, Man, I think it was made in the yeah. 60s, is Winter Kills. Oh, with Jeff Bridges, yes. And that movie has a great backstory because they didn't have the money to finish it. And it had an incredible cast of everyone from Elizabeth Taylor to John Huston. Anthony Perkins. Perkins in a perfect role, crazy, batshit kind of character, you know. Um, trying to think of... Uh, didn't Winter Kills have another name, but then they went back to that? But it's on DVD now with a lot of supplements, which uh, I recommend that. Those are both great movies, as is The Manchurian Candidate, too. You know, it's funny that we're starting off by mentioning uh, Parallax View, because I've only had one other film historian on the show, and he's actually a bit of a JFK buff, too, and he's a big fan of Parallax View, uh, and that's Joseph McBride. Oh, I uh, know Joseph, of course. He was a great Orson Welles, the other side of the wind. Yes, he was in that movie. I and of know course well, he, did the, he did the Capra biography for my listeners that, that didn't get to hear that episode. He did the Capra biography, Spielberg, uh, John Ford, uh, oh, covering well, all no, these great Joseph characters. McBride just did an audio commentary for Marlena Dietrich. And I did one. We're working for Keen all over. So I did Song of Songs by Ruben Malmulian and Joe did uh, Angel, the Lubitsch. And uh, I listened to it because I never listened to these things, you know. But I thought if I'm going to do a Dietrich, how dare I without listening to Joe because he's written books. And so fortunately, uh, I got nice reviews for mine, as did Joe. So, But no, um, it's funny because Orson Welles, Oh, my God. Well, we should talk about Orson. Well, ask, ask me whatever you want, because I feel like if you leave me alone, I will just talk this whole hour and just talk shit. So, Well, the, the, the reason I mentioned Joseph McBride is I, I feel like Joseph covers one end of Hollywood history and you sort of cover uh, another end as a film. Yeah, I'm in the alley and he's on the main boulevard. I, know. I, I, I was going to say, how would you describe uh, the Hollywood well, you're covering you haunted know, Hollywood I, esoteric Hollywood, maybe? Uh, well, I'm more Kenneth Anger, and he's more, uh, he's more, um, uh, well, I, not, I want to say Francois Truffaut, but um, we shared a great friend in FX Feeney, who passed away last year, and FX was a fabulous guy and a dear friend, and uh, he was another side of the wind, too, um, as was my friends Curtis Harrington and Cameron Mitchell and Cameron's the best thing in that, by the way. I finally saw it. And uh, between you and me and all of our listeners, it's not Orson's picture. And I, I know this is going against because I was around when Orson was trying to get it made. And it's just, some things can't be completed. And I think it's very, it's a valiant effort, but it's not Orson's picture. Yeah, for my, uh, the for documentary my... about it is more Orson's picture. Oh, really? Okay, okay. I love the doc. I love documentaries. 
I watch more documentaries now than I do movies. I was going to say I have for- Netflix. So I realized one thing the minute the first month I got Netflix, I realized now I know where all the Polish detective TV series are getting sold to. What an obscure collection of bullshit they've got on Netflix. Bruce Willis, such a whore. He has made more movies that no one knows about where he comes in for five minutes, collects his, it's shameful, shameful. He's the John Carradine of, of independent movies now. He's, 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 he's eclipsed Eric Roberts. He's eclipsed Lorenzo Lamas. I don't even know if there's a category for Bruce Willis now. It's called whore is what it is basically. So, so yeah, I got to I mean, ask, since we mentioned Orson Welles, I, I mentioned another figure. Another whore. <laughs> well, he was in uh, that Burt I. Gordon movie, Necromancy. So, um, Oh, I'm, no. Listen, when, when we were doing the documentary, The Horror of It All, we had Orson was going to do the narration for it. This was 1983, and this was my first documentary. Orson was living in Las Vegas, being a big hooker, of course. And... We had him all signed, sealed, and delivered, and then he wanted more money. And I wanted to drive to Las Vegas and hang out with him, you know, because he was drunk off his ass at this point and doing anything, you know, he was doing Piazzadora movies, you know, this guy was doing anything you gave him. And we couldn't make a deal with him at last, so we got Jose Ferrer. Incredible voice, what a nice guy, I loved him. Uh, and I was able to talk about him. Uh, a friend of mine wrote a book about Joe, and uh, I'm I'm quoted in it because he was in the documentary and all. This is a good story, but uh, and Joe had just done Dracula's Dog for Crown International for my friend that my friend Reggie Nalder was in so from Salem's Lot. So it's a small world, you know. But uh, yeah, I mean, Netflix has really been something. I mean, I got it so I could watch Hollywood, the Ryan Murphy thing. That's why I got it. Now I've had it for three months and I know more about Bruce Willis than I ever wanted to. So there you go. <laughs> That's my Netflix story. I, I, I was actually gonna ask, uh, there's a figure that I'm, I'm sure you cross path with that uh, Joseph McBride also crossed paths with. Are you familiar with Gary Graver? Did you ever cross paths there, with him? Oh, Gary, Gary Graver. <laughs> was one of a kind. He was uh, a dear friend. Um, he saved Orson's ass, to be honest, because Orson leaned on him. Joe will tell you. Gary was incredible. Uh, I worked on several things with Gary. Uh, Evil Spirits was a movie he did with Karen Black. Uh, my, my friend Dan Golden was working on that. And my very good friend, George Edwards, who you may know from Frogs, a masterpiece. Frogs is a masterpiece. I love that movie. When the frog jumps on Ray Milan's birthday cake. <laughs> Classic moment. So uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Gary, there should be a documentary about Gary. You know, Gary directed a movie called Trick or Treat that starred his son, Chris, which I don't know because there's several movies called Trick or Treat now. So I don't know if you're familiar with this movie, but yeah, I think Gary it's called directed... Trick or Treats, actually, with an S. Is there an S there? Yeah, yeah. And okay. David Carradine right. and Rillsback are in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, John's in everything back then. Uh, but Gary did uh, Al Adamson movies, porn. He did directed porn. In fact, Orson cut one of Gary's porn movies. Really? Oh yeah. <laughs> it's a scene in a shower. 
And Orson's idea was, he said, well, you know, Gary, we need to move the shot up so I can Hitchcock get the shower. And I mean, the whole idea of Orson Welles directing a porn, I would watch that rather than Other Side of the Wind, to be honest with you. But so uh, yeah, no, Gary's a great guy, great guy, was a great guy. Um, they had a memorial for him at the Egyptian and Curtis Harrington and I went to that together and Curtis cried like a baby because remember Gary uh, shot his, his last movie, Usher, which was Curtis's experimental film and Gary shot it. Uh, Gary was just a terrific guy and loved movies. And you know, what can I say? I hope someone does a documentary about him. If they do, I'd love to work on it. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually a, a big fan of Gary Graver. I think he was a really great well, cinematographer. He was a, he was a real soldier of cinema, is what I would call him, a soldier of cinema. So getting into, you mentioned that you're sort of dealing with the, uh, the alleys of Hollywood. How did you uh, end up picking those topics as a film historian? Well, Boris Karloff once said, in the middle of shooting The Raven in 1935, someone, Ian Wolfe walked up to him in between takes and said, Boris, where's the men's room? And Karloff looked at him and said, the whole studio is a bathroom. And <laughs> um, that kind of gave me, if Boris Karloff is saying that about Universal, it kind of gave me the uh, the, uh, the incentive to kind of look between the cracks of Hollywood. And of course, knowing Kenneth Anger like I did, his Hollywood Babylon books were kind of my template for my own. And I worked on the second Hollywood Babylon too. I provided all the photographs for it. And um, for example, Kenneth was having a lot of problems with the edit, with the publisher, because, you know, you couldn't, make up things about movie stars and expect somebody like Macmillan to publish it without corroboration. So he had started this thing about Cary Grant and Randolph Scott being homosexual lovers and he couldn't prove it. But I found about 10 million pictures of them living together swimming together, exercising together, staring at each other endlessly over dinner tables and dining. And, you know, I thought, you know what, Kenneth, instead of you writing a chapter calling them gay, why don't we just print all these pictures of them living together without women and just let people come to their own? Because remember, a picture is worth a thousand words. So Hollywood Babylon Part Two were, was primarily photographs because he wouldn't get sued. Uh, so I went that way with him. Sometimes though, it didn't work to our advantage. I'll give you one example of this. I was helping him with, we were sitting in my living room and I put on a videotape of Voodoo Man with Bela Lugosi, a masterpiece. And uh, you know, this is the one where Lugosi is the head of a, a cult and um, George Zuko is his, his uh, grand master and he also runs a filling station. So George, you know, checks, your, checks under your hood and also works with Rambuna, who never lies. So anyway, this is a great movie, crazy movie. It's and one of the Monogram Nine, yeah. It's one of the Monogram Nine, and my favorite, next to Invisible Ghost. So I'm showing this to Kenneth Anger, and he's going, 
wouldn't it be weird if George Zuko had like taken that role so seriously that he kind of lost his mind and wandered around Hollywood Boulevard dressed in his robes and his feathers and talking about Rambuna? And I said, well, yeah, but that never happened. So that was the end of it. So to cut to the chase, he goes back to New York. When his book comes out, there's a whole little thing on George Zuko being crazy. And, and I, I'm reading this and I'm going, but this is all bullshit. This didn't happen. And so what do we do? I just think, oh, well, there you are. I mean, life goes on. Cut to my friend Dan Golden and I are like doing something. And we discover that George Zuko's widow, Stella Zuko, is very much alive and is furious about this book. I am so upset. I, so I write Stella Zuko a letter and I go, dear Mrs. Zuko, I'm profoundly sorry for this. And I tried to explain to her what happened. And I sent her this letter and she said, well, this doesn't really do either one of us any good, does it? And I said, no, it doesn't, but you know. And I, and I kind of looked at that as here I am actually dealing with what happens when you fabricate things. And believe me, there are an awful lot of books about Hollywood that aren't true. It's the classic, the man who shot Liberty Balance. When confronted with the legend and the truth, print the legend. And that's what pretty much what Kenneth did. He printed some legends, you know. Maybe that's, would... they called it Hollywood legends. It might've been a little more. But in any case, to answer your question, I then thought if I'm gonna do books, I want to make them subjective and they have to be real. So the only people I knew the truth about were people that weren't all that famous because famous people are protected. Look how long it took them to figure out Barry Manilow was gay. I mean, I, that doesn't even make sense, does it? But in, in other words, you know, uh, he writes the songs that keep everybody in the closet, but there you are. But in any case, um, so I decided to write about people like, uh, Joyce Jameson, who had been in Comedy of Terrors and Tales of Terror and worked on Broadway and everything, but no one knew who she was. But my first book is really about people that you look at them and you go, oh, I know that guy, but you don't know his name. So I tried to put a name with the picture. And so my first book, Lost Horizons Beneath the Hollywood Sign, was basically about my reflecting on people that didn't quite make it they're kind of under the Hollywood sign. I thought that was a great metaphor for Hollywood. And then I did a second one, which is more of the same. And now I have a third one. And then I have a book um, that, I've, that I've been kind of holding back, um, which is going to be called The Glitter Stops at La Brea, which is about my life in Hollywood. Um, but it's more of a book dealing with me as a gay man, as opposed to me being, uh, because I think living in Hollywood from my point of view was very specialized. And I, I realized that there were so many people that were not being honest about who they were and blah, blah, blah. But in any case, um, yeah, I hope, I mean, that's my answer to your question. I really wanted to make uh, character actors, especially better known. And now I, I notice I'm not alone. There are a lot of people doing books uh, my publisher was Bear Manor Media, and they do nothing but show business, biography and stuff. So uh, my third book will come out from them. And I've done a million documentaries. I'm in three right now. 
Uh, I did one called Skin about uh, nudity in cinema. You were in that guy, Dick Miller. I'm in that guy, Dick Miller. I love Dick Miller. And uh, I got to know him, you know, over living here. And, um, and I just am completing two for Shudder. One is uh, about 80s horror and the other is queer horror, which will be the LGBT movies of, you know, they're getting me to talk about uh, James Whale and uh, um, Charles Lawton and, uh, you know, a lot of the gay men that work in, in, in horror because there are quite a few of them. I, I was going to ask, um, what do you think about the connection maybe between, you know, queer tropes and horror movies? Because I know a lot of people into 80s horror will mention Nightmare on Elm Street to Freddy's Revenge, but there's a long history of movies that sort of have like a gay subtext. Well, vampire movies are inherently a um, sexually fluid, I love that word now, we're all fluid, right? Uh, fluid kind of thing because, you know, vampires uh, live in the darkness. They can't see their image in a mirror. Uh, they're basically predatory. And uh, all of these cliches of uh, the vampire, uh, the vampire genre has more homosexual subtext than any other. And I think that is historically because Lord Byron is the first prototype of the vampire because his boyfriend, John Palladori, Polly Dolly as he called him, uh, chronicled, uh, wrote the first vampire novel, which was The Vampire by John Polidori. Bram Stoker wrote Dracula, also bisexual, also, uh, Polidori was in love with Lord Byron. Bram Stoker was in love with Sir Henry Irving. Sir Henry Irving looks just like Dracula. Exactly. And he died in Bram's arms. So there you are. And then Anne Rice was the cherry on the, on the dessert with making Louis and Lestat, you know, very fluid, shall we say. Now, the only problem I have with the vampire as a metaphor for homosexuality is that vampires are reanimated corpses that look at people for food. So I don't see any romance there or even any sexual. However, ever since they started filming Dracula, they have tried in vain, I think, to make a romance out of it. It is not a gothic romance. It's not Emily Bronte. Yeah, that, that Francis Ford Coppola movie was not exactly accurate to the book. Total fabrication. Have you read Dracula? I mean, yes. <laughs> everyone's saying, I want to go back to the novel. Why would you do that? It's a diary. It's boring. You need to go. Well, I mean, Conan Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote Bram Stoker, his first fan letter. So if, 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 if Sir Arthur Conan Doyle liked Dracula, I like Dracula, but it's not, it's not something one would aspire to film absolutely page by page, you know what I'm saying? But on the other hand, it's not a romance. Dracula is not in love with anyone. That's, you know, that is a, I don't know what that is. Um, you know, the only one they leave alone is the mummy. Because of course, when they did this with Dracula, the first mummy, the one that Karloff did in 1932, is basically an Egyptian Dracula. If you ever notice, you can put, they're, they're the same story. In fact, it's the same cast, except instead of Karloff, it's instead of Lugosi, it's Karloff. But you have the woman enamored of him. You have David Manners. You have, 
Edward Van Sloan. You have, you, it's basically Dracula in Egypt. So when you realize how these source novels were kind of not adhered to, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Spengali, Dorian Gray, movies have been made out of all of them, but none of them are all that accurate. The picture of Dorian Gray is probably the closest thing we have to a gay horror novel of the period. But that's understandable considering Oscar Wilde and his relationship with Lord Alfred Douglas and all of that. But the first audio commentary I ever did was for Harry Kumel's Daughters of Darkness, which of course is a lesbian vampire movie and very explicit for the time. Blood and Roses, which is one of my favorite vampire movies with women, they say is a lesbian film. I don't see it myself. Uh, women, you know, being affectionate with, with each other does not necessarily mean sexual desire. With guys, you know, you pretty much know what's, what's up with that right away. And you rarely see that in movies because unfortunately living in America, we live in a very repressive place which is why you have to look at European movies to see what's up, you know. Right, you watch all those Hammer uh, vampire well, movies the Hammers, the 70s, yeah, so the Hammers from, oh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, Ingrid was, uh, what a trip she was. But yeah, I mean, she was too old to play that, but nobody cares, you know, I mean, she pulled it off. I mean, she was 40 when she did that, or 39, she pulled it off. Um, but Hammer uh, and AIP were both kind of geared for the youth market. So of course, sex and violence, but you know, isn't it remarkable how unviolent a lot of this is by today's standards, you know? But in any case, um, you know, that was where I kind of uh, went with that. And I think this documentary is gonna be very interesting because we're going back to Mary Shelley and talk about her bisexuality because Mary liked women. No one at that little weekend in, in, in that lake, <laughs> What a group. You had John Polidori, Lord Byron, Mary Shelley, you know, wow. And, uh, you know, none of them were like, uh, you, could you pin them down on their sexuality? And I think Frankenstein, uh, of the Hammer films, the Frankenstein series is infinitely superior to the Dracula. Better written, uh, there's more going on. Peter Cushing is amazing. Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed is a masterpiece. The best movie I think Terrence Fisher ever did. Uh, Horror of Dracula, the first Dracula, very good. The sequels, not so much. Because you didn't have, with Peter Cushing, this constant worry about money. You know, Christopher Lee wanted more and more money. And so the Dracula films, he would be in them for 10 minutes, and then they would have to pad it out because he was so expensive. But Peter Cushing never did cameos in the Frankenstein movies. He did there. He's the star. I was, I was going to comment. It's great that you bring up Christopher Lee because a while back I had uh, Nicholas Schreck on, who was married to Anton LaVey's daughter. And he talked about his friendship with Christopher Lee. And he said that, you know, when it came to those Dracula films, Lee actually did those because Hammer Studios would apparently tell him, if you don't do this, a lot, uh, a lot of, of people, people will be out of job. work. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, okay, that's true. <laughs> Tony Hines told me that specifically, and so did Michael Carreras. They both came to me when I was in Zurich, and they said, Christopher, if you don't do this picture, everyone will be blah, 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 blah. And so he would do another one. And, you know, he'd always say to me, 
if the money's there and the part's there, I'm there and I deliver. You know, Christopher had a very powerful ego, you know, but he was kind of, I loved him. I loved him because when you were alone with him, he was hilarious and very uh, humble. But I heard the there's a good get, story. The get, well, the minute you get Christopher in a crowd, he became a pompous ass, which was unfortunate because that wasn't who he really was. I, I was going to say, I heard you have a good story about taking him to a, a gay disco at one point. I took him to Studio One. And before we were getting ready to go, he said, well, I don't think I'll bring Gita, you know. And I, I don't think my wife would enjoy this. I said, look, it's all for you. <laughs> because I'm telling you, there's nothing campier than British character actors. They all, you, you know, this is why Orson Welles famously said, I don't know if the, this, he's English. I don't know if he's gay or straight. They all look gay. They all sound gay to me. You know what I mean? And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that was so much fun because Christopher was, he was so dazzled by Hollywood, but he didn't want to admit it. And he was starstruck, you know, uh, one of the airport movie he did with Jack Lemmon. And he would, you know, I'm working with Jack Lemmon now. Everything, I'm just golfed with, with uh, Lou Wasserman. I mean, I'm definitely getting that. I've, I've broken stigma and I'm going, you oh, well, you're in an airport movie. And of course, when I saw it, I called him up and I said, Christopher, I just saw this movie and Lee Grant says your dick was the size of an olive. Did you notice that? And he's, what are you talking about? Totally missed the scene. In the movie, Lee Grant's drunk and Christopher's playing her husband and he's over by the bar trying to avoid her because she's drunk. So she comes over and she takes the olive out of her martini and she says, this is how big you are. <laughs> I just died. And he didn't get it. And mercifully so. And of course, I mean, this is the way I, this is what I loved about him was that he was so naive sometimes about what he, he didn't get it, you know. And then he played a gay biker in this movie called Serial. And he would not leave me alone with this thing. He said, well, you know, I'm playing this character. And of course, you know, I do in a marvelous American accent. But I feel, David, that since I'm playing the head, the leader, as it were, of a gay leather bike club, that I should sound like you. And I said, well, you, can you? And he, I don't know how he did, he sounded, he really sounded like an American, kind of like, not like me, but I couldn't really hear him that. But anyway, so he goes up to uh, Sonoma County, or to um, Sausalito up in Marin County, and they shoot this thing called Serial with uh, Martin Mall. And it's one of those new age things where everybody's getting gurus and going to hot tubs and all that. And Chris is playing this gay biker. And so he, they gave him a boyfriend. So he's been up there like three or four days. He goes, well, David, I want to send you a picture of this young man. Do you think he would be someone like, would you like him? I mean, I, I don't know about these things. I said, you're really, you're really too much. I said, yes. Yeah. And so he sent me this twink, this little blonde twink and I said, Perfect. Oh, well, I knew you would approve. I, I, I thought you would. And I just, I couldn't believe I was having this kind of relationship with him. That That is so surreal to me. And, you know, I, I wanted well, to not ask. Not only that, his cat was named Renfield. And when he, was <laughs> moving, when he was moving out of LA, he was in a motel on Wilshire Boulevard. And I went to say goodbye and we were having coffee. And the cat got out of the room. It was in the hallway. And, oh, excuse me, Renfield's out. I have to get. 
So I watched, here's Lee, like, you know, six, four. And he walks out into the hallway of the motel going, where's daddy's widow baby? Where with him? Talking like baby talk. This is Dracula. I am watching Count Dracula go get his cat. Where's my widow baby? And I'm just like, I, I wish I had it. They didn't have cell, you know, if I could, if I'd had a cell phone in those days, I would have such pictures you wouldn't believe. But no, he was amazing. And I, that's the Christopher Lee I want people to know. This funny kind of dear, um, childish. He was, you know, I mean, he had all these qualities and I could certainly see why Gita loved him because they'd been married for years and all. Uh, but yeah, no, Vincent Price on the other hand is probably the greatest celebrity I ever met in my life because I worshiped him when I was a kid, worshiped him. So and you were always I, a fan of horror movies? Always, always, always. Because it's a very juvenile thing to do. You know, anyone that is passionate about horror films started watching them when they were little. It all goes back to mommy and daddy, I assure you, whatever it is. And for me, the universal classics, I saw them on television, you know, uh, adjusting the rabbit ears so I could see Son of Dracula through all the snow. And you guys have it so easy. You can watch practically anything now on your phone. I remember when it was a, it was a big deal to catch one of these movies. If you didn't, 10 o'clock, you had to circle the TV guide and all. You know, so I, you know, yeah, I went up through all of that. And but this is back, you can correct me if I'm 50s, wrong on this. This is in the late, I, I, was, I was like six years old when Lugosi died in 50, because I was born in 1949. So the 50s, I barely remember. because Right, was a right. Kid. But by the time 58 rolled around, I begged my mother to take me see the horror of Dracula. So we went to see it. And as soon as Christopher Lee comes through the library doors, I go down under my seat. I don't even watch the movie. I'm too frightened to look at the movie. And my mother said, why do I keep bringing you these things when you won't look at them? And I'm going like, you know, but that's how, that's how I started, you know, watching movies. I, I was going to say uh, for my listeners that are a bit younger, this is a time when, you know, TV stations are buying like packages worth of movies. So you're getting all these horror movies. Well, uh, being put it, was on the show. Shock, it was called shock theater and right. shock theater owned all of the universals and a lot of the paramounts. And there I was like uh, 1955. I'm five years old. I'm sitting in front of a television looking for the very first time in my life at Dracula and then Frankenstein, and then The Mummy, and then The Creature from the Black, all this stuff. And I'm just wondering where it all is coming from, because I'm so little. And I remember that Rillard Pictures had put some of them in theaters. So when I'm like seven or eight years old, my mother's like, she'll take me to the movies. So the first Universal movie I saw in a theater as a child was The, the Mummy's Curse with Lon Chaney. And, uh, in the movie, the mummy comes up out of a well or something. And my little five-year-old mind translated all of that when we got home. And that I wouldn't go to the bathroom because I didn't want to sit on the toilet because the mummy would come up through the thing and grab me by the ass or something. And at those days, I didn't want my ass grabbed by the mummy. Still don't, by the way, but there you are. But anyway, that was my first introduction to Universal. And then by the time Hammer was in vogue, I was old enough to go to the movies. And of course, the first time I saw The Hammer Mummy and The Hound of the Baskervilles, all those early pairings of Cushing and Lee, I was you know, crazy about them. 
But isn't it amazing I got to meet all these people? Who knew? Like, I remember in 1960 when I first saw Black Sunday with Barbara Steele. I was on the phone with her this morning. We've been friends for 40 years. And I, who knew? Because, you know, being a fan does not always mean you get to know and be friends with your idols. And I was very lucky in that by the time I was an adult, both Barbara Steele and Vincent Price and Christopher Lee were people that I knew. And I knew them better than just passing acquaintance or a fan. So uh, when I started doing audio commentary, I used to get criticized by some kind of, uh, you know, jealous critics that wanted to say, well, David name drops too much. But I'm not name dropping. These are people that were my friends. If they happen to be famous, well, there you are. But I can understand how that may sound. So, you know, I'm a little better about it now, but I didn't mean to offend anyone by, by being me. What can I say? So I, I was going to interject here. Uh, let's get to how you get to know all these stars. And I want to start in an unusual place. You were involved with something called the Dracula Society. Oh, the And Count Donald Dracula Reed, who is that? Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. First of all, here's how it, how it went. I was in, I was, a, I was a, not a junior. I was a freshman, a freshman in high school. And there was a local TV show in Sacramento called the Bob Wilkins Creature Feature Show. And Bob had guests. And I watched the show religiously. And the weekend that I moved to Sacramento to start school, uh, Bob had shown Curse of the Demon with Dana Andrews, which is one of my favorites, a great black magic movie. So I wrote him a note and I said, I love your, what you're doing with your show. And he sent me a note back and said, well, are you a horror fan? And I said, oh yes, in fact, Mr. Wilkins, I'm a member of the Count Dracula Society. And he, he called me and he said, this is Bob Wilkins. I've been following you. He said, what the hell is the Count Dracula Society? And, you know, I didn't know anything about it because I was a member by mail. He, I said, well, I joined this by mail and I have my little card. And he said, would you come on my show and talk about being a member of this thing? And I said, sure. So the rest is history. I went on his show and he liked me so much, I became a regular. And the Count Dracula Society, which was uh, in Los Angeles, was founded by a hideous, hideous little troll named Donald A. Reed. And the A stood for asshole. So it's Donald Asshole Reed, who was the founder and president of the Count Dracula Society. And he talked like that. He's really obnoxious, hideous, hideous human being. And he ran this organization and it caught on. And Robert Block joined, uh, Ray Harryhausen joined, Forey joined. Bob Block was the first one to realize it was all crap because he took one look at Donald Reed and he said, well, that's not an asshole. That's a whole bag of assholes. And we, we just hated him. But, you know, he was it was his show. And Forey put up with it. And, you know, in those days, I thought, well, you know, this place, this guy was performing a service for us all because he organized it so we could have a place to meet. And get these amazing people to come and be guests. We had Fritz Lang, 
We had Lon Chaney Jr. We had, uh, oh, all kinds of people. Bud Abbott before he died. Very sad story about Bud Abbott, I'll tell you that. Um, but Donald was just totally egocentric, awful, hideous, hideous, hideous. And uh, was just, I can't tell you how awful he was. He was I just, love your impersonation of him. He sounds like a character. <laughs> well, his big claim to fame was he goes, I'm Donald A. Reed of the Count Dracula Society, and I have seen Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein over a hundred times. Over a hundred times. A hundred times. It was, I can't even begin to tell you. It was just, he was horrible. And he was a very closeted guy, and he was kind of in love with Robert Redford. So the only book Donald ever wrote was a 128-page book called The Films of Robert Redford. <laughs> and there you are. I didn't care about Robert Redford that much back then. I don't know. But who he really liked was Don Johnson. And as long as Donald Reed was the head of the Count Dracula Society, Don Johnson got an award, an award every year for a boy and his dog. Any excuse to get that blonde down there, you know, I knew what was going on, but I thought it was too hilarious not to just see how it plays out. So, oh God, we used to do such terrible things to him. I would get an ounce of pot and put it in a little plastic bag and I'd put it on my lap and I would roll joints while he was showing movies so he could see me because I was sitting next to Forey Ackerman. So what was he going to do? He hated me. And he got his revenge because I was corresponding with Gloria Holden, who played Dracula's daughter, fabulous. And I was crazy about her. But she was old and lived in Redlands and she didn't, she was a recluse. She didn't leave her house. So Donald Reed gets a hold of me and he goes, We're going to give her an award, but she's got to come and pick it up in person. And I said, Well, that's not going to happen. She's asked me to pick it up for her. So you know what that asshole did? He picked, he gave me the wrong date. I arrived to accept her award in an empty parking lot in a dark auditorium. He had had the ceremony the, next, the day before and told an entire audience of people that the reason this award was sitting here with no one to collect it was David DelVal was too grand and too full of himself to bring her down here. Just letting you know. You think I'm ever gonna forget something like that? So I tell hideous stories about him and he's been dead for a while. I've destroyed his legacy, thank you. So see, it's not nice to make me angry. <laughs> well, so, so you said you said Bud Abbott, you had a story that you were gonna tell. Bud Abbott was the most bitter man you can imagine because, and he has every reason to be, Abbott and Costello made more money for this country selling war bonds than any other entertainer, including Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin. Both Abbott and Costello were audited by the IRS. Bud lost his home. You don't treat people like that in this country that way when they've done that much for this country. So he lost his home. And it was, it was, it was a disgrace. And fortunately, one of the things that an organization, even as silly as Don Reed's organization, was uh, we raised some money. Uh, the motion picture home was still kind of beginning. But, you know, it's not fair when people, because I don't think young people realize what war bonds meant. If you look at old movies, you see at the end of them, buy your war, it was a big deal. And Abbott and Costello sold millions of dollars worth of those things for the government. 
anyway, that was, the, and I, that's, you know, I kind of like, because he was, Abin Costello, I mean, even though Donald, I shouldn't like as Donald did, but Abin Costello Meet Frankenstein is still probably the best of all the horror comedies, because horror and comedy is very hard to do. I know people want to quote, you know, Fright Night and the Monster Squad and all that. Abin Costello Meet Frankenstein. And uh, actually, The Bride of Frankenstein is very funny because it's a satire. But um, for the most part, it's very hard to do that, to make a funny. Uh, I think Return of the Living Dead is probably the closest thing we have to one that's successful, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that. You know, I would say that there's a lot of movies that it, that have a sort of comedic element, but are horror movies. Like a lot of the, even the Joe Dante movies that are specifically horror, like The Howling, there's a little bit of comedy in them. I love how there's a melting well, at times. The, the Howling is a send up. I don't think, and so is American Werewolf in London. The reason I like The Howling more is because while atmosphere and homage to the classics is always a plus, Landis's movie, the werewolves look like big dogs like they do on Twilight. And that to me isn't a werewolf, that's a big dog. And I'm not afraid of big dogs, you just shoot them. Uh, but in terms of uh, werewolf, it was just like, it just became, by the time this big, CGI thing was running around Piccadilly Square, I wasn't interested anymore. Whereas The Howling at least had John Carradine and that hilarious, I gotta burn, doc. Dog, oh, he didn't have any teeth, you know? I mean, that was, now that was funny. And what was really funny, when, when I first saw Howling in preview, the whole, cause we're in, we're in industry town. So the scene where Joe had Roger go into a phone booth and check and see if there was any change. Classic, you know? because there's no one cheaper than Roger, but we all owe him everything. So what are you going to do? But I prefer the howling to American werewolf for me anyway. So I, I was going to ask, so you're involved with the Count Dracula Society. For my listeners that are unfamiliar, how do you become sort of an agent in Hollywood for a time? Well, you sure don't become anything by being in the Count Dracula Society. Let me make that very clear. Uh, uh, because the Count Dracula Society then became the Academy of Science Fiction and Fantasy that you know today. But when they bought it, the first thing they did, they got rid of Donald. And they couldn't get rid of him all the way, but when they did the ceremony on television, they made sure he was by contract allowed only three minutes of screen time. They figured he couldn't fuck up three minutes. Like if they gave him four minutes, then don't the bets are off. But uh, they confined him to that. And then, of course, he died of, you know, my carses. But, um, uh, no, he was died. Well, there's a documentary about him called My Life with Count Dracula. If this can ever be found, it ends with Donald's coffin being lowered into the ground <laughs> because he was diabetic and he wouldn't stop eating sugar. So it killed him. Whew. The so last time I saw him, he was, he was huge, he gained, you know, when you're diabetic, you lose weight, you don't gain weight unless you wanna die. And that's what he did. And uh, uh, he was waddling down the aisle to see the Brendan Fraser mummy. And he moved as far away of me, from me as he could get. <laughs> 
because I mercilessly kidded him during, because you know, my voice carries. And if I'm in a theater and I'm displeased with something, I can make enough. My audio commentaries then were kind of bitchy, but there you are. But anyway, he was a mess. But I don't suppose anyone ever talks about him anymore. Except so, me. <laughs> oh, you, you destroyed his legacy, as you said earlier. I have destroyed don't, his legacy as I put salt and garlic on it, and I, you know. Don't mess with David Dalville. Yeah, uh, don't do that unless, just be nice. Everybody be nice and we'll be cool, you know. But, so, uh, go ahead. How did you start working with the stars in, in well, the that Well, that was years and years later. What happened with that was, uh, when you're in Hollywood and you're you're getting your 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 bearings and everything, you meet a lot of people. And uh, I was doing with these societies and things. I'd become a member of the foreign press, and I was going to things. I met a couple of lawyers uh, in 1979 that were looking for uh, a partner for a, a, a talent agency, and I was working and the mail room in William Morris. I was gonna be an agent, but if, to be an agent in the old days, you had to start at the bottom. You had to go into the mail room. You had to work craft services if you wanted to get into movies. You didn't just come into town and see, that's the problem with what's going on right now, my friend. We know too many people, young people that come to Hollywood with mommy's credit cards or daddy's credit cards or their trust funds. And they're bingo, they're direct. I can name you five right now that are working right now that have no credits other than money. And the fact that they get these scripts together and they go right to the top. I'm a director. You know, no one starts out in town being a star or being a director, but we have that now. Yeah, Roger Corman had to work his way up originally, right? Of course he did, they all do. Fred Owen Ray. Uh, uh, is probably one of the last of that breed of people that work. You know, there are a whole bunch, I mean, I'm not putting, I mean, good luck if you can do it. But I just think that uh, you have to learn your craft. And maybe you're learning it while you work. You know, if throwing ketchup on your friends in your backyard is your idea of making a movie, then go for it. I'm not gonna, you know, but I just, all, you just go on YouTube or any, look at all this. The, the market is glutted, glutted with, with horror films. My advice to anyone writing a script now is write a Christmas movie or a movie, some, you know, psycho woman, you know, give the, it, women are empowered now. So turn them all into bitches and put them in these uh, psycho bitty movies, you know, the wrong, the wrong cheerleader, the wrong husband, you know. Those are what's selling right now. Horror films are, well, horror films are like, there are too many of them, don't you think? Yeah, well, I, I was gonna say, it's interesting. I always tell people, I'm like, you know, it seems like the place to go now, if, if you wanna be like uh, independently sort of working type director is where Fred Olin Ray and David Decato have gone, which is, uh, you know, make Lifetime movies. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, let's face it. We are confronted with this new world where more people are at home, more people are downloading things. Uh, I think the future is on is online. I don't know if if how physical media. I mean, you and I are collectors. I'm assuming, yes. and you like books, and you like DVDs, and you like CDs, and you like to hold things in your hands and collect. So, you're not going to stop doing that, even though every movie on earth is available as a download, but see, we're finding out 
The reason I keep such a large still collection of DVDs is so many of them aren't available on anything. I mean, the non-Blu-rays I have in one section because those aren't on Blu-ray yet. And the Blu-rays are, there's a whole lot of movies that, I mean, now there's so much more. Uh, I'm about to do one next week that I can't say the title of yet, but um, um, it's been a lost film. So it's everything, you know, I, I hope I live long enough to see them find London after midnight, you know. I mean, they've got the camera negative for Troll. You'd at least think they could find some really good movies for a change, you know, but yeah. I love it. I mean, they can't find all like Magnificent Ambersons, London After Midnight. But damn, we've got the we've got the camera negative for uh, 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 what what uh, Mono's Hands of Fate, you know, the greatest film shot in El Paso, uh, which is where I was born. So you know, I, Mono's is a big deal for me because it's from El Paso, man. Uh, but in any case, yeah, I mean. Um, Look, I think there's room for everything and uh, let's just see how it all plays out. But I do think, you know, there are certain types of movies that we need to kind of calm down on, like remaking Dracula every five minutes. Why, why is there such a lack of imagination? That's my question. Well, you know, uh, I was going to say, um, since I mentioned Lifetime movies, I don't know what you think of this, but everyone I'm always- one. I'm in one. I'm in the oh, really? wrong mommy. Okay, okay. David, well, Dakota, I... David Dakota put me, I have what's supposed to, I hear you love this. I have what's supposed to be a recurring role in David's movies as Cameron, the barista. And I'm actually, I'm Cameron, the barista. I have one or two lines in The Wrong Mommy. So check it out, you know, and I'm probably going to do another one for him. Uh, but he's a very close friend of mine. We're, we're very good friends. And we've done a dozen audio commentaries together. I mean, we're known as the two Davids, actually. So, well, I, I was going to say in regards to Lifetime movies, you know, if if people like exploitation movies, I don't know how they can not watch Lifetime movies because they sort of do have well, like an remember, exploitative element. Lifetime you know? and Hallmark movies were were the 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 main attraction for housewives and gay men, and that's why you know you'll find hot guys on these things. It's always. And the women are more empowered now because that's the deal and and uh, more ethnic characters in this and that. And, uh, you know, uh, but I, I, I enjoy them. Uh, you know, I mean, they're fun. And uh, the ones that David does with Vivica A. Fox are great. They're terrific. And my other friend, Sam Urban, does a lot of them. And Sam's a lot of them. Sam's a terrific guy. And he directed Elvira's Haunted Hills and... Uh, uh, a number of, of movies and um, uh, we're, we, I just think he's terrific. And he's doing a lot of these things. And Ron Oliver, who did uh, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. Uh, Ron's a real character and he's directed a lot of these Christmas movies too. They start making these Christmas movies in the middle of the summer and they make about a hundred of them. So isn't that interesting? And they, they're very popular. So I, I was gonna say, Working as an agent or just working in Hollywood in general, uh, what are some of your favorite stories working with some of these stars? Oh, there's so many. I don't even know. I don't even know where to begin. Well, the most fun. Uh, I have a terrible story about Zelda Rubenstein. Do you want to hear it from Poltergeist? Yeah, Zelda Rubenstein from Poltergeist. I'd love to hear it. All righty. 
I meet Zelda Rubenstein with Paul Bartel and Divine at a screening of Anguish, which is a movie that Zelda did right after Poltergeist with Michael Lerner. And it's a very strange, weird movie. So she's at the screening, Zelda. And, you know, I meet her and we're, we're very friendly and she knows I'm doing these award things and all. And that because of Poltergeist, you know, she's definitely, maybe I can start making a lot of horror movies, which is why she did Anguish and everything. I get it, you know. And I thought she was a lot of fun. So we, we, we hook up and there's a, not an award show, but there's some kind of a screening with an app, with a, a, a party and, I don't know if it was the foreign press, but at any rate, she wanted me to take her. And it was where Jimmy Kimmel does his show now. That big building on Hollywood Boulevard that looks like a bank. Well, that was where we had the party. Valet parking, I emphasize, and it was packed. So, you know, I'm taking, I'm driving Zelda Rubenstein to this thing. We get there and the parking is atrocious. The traffic is awful. I'm in a wretched mood and she is acting like Elizabeth Taylor. And she has a little white, little white fur wrap around her. And she takes it off. My stuff in here, I think I'll just take my wrap off. So she takes it off and puts it by the thing. So we get there and we finally get parked. She forgets her wrap and I don't notice this. So we go into the thing, it's like, and of course she's little. So I'm kind of protecting her to get to the, where the bar is, which is at the other end of this auditorium. So we get all the way to the end of this thing and I'm about to order her a drink and she tags on me. She goes, David, I need my wrap. I said, what? I said, it's in the car. Would you go get it for me, please? I said, Zelda, it's in the car with ballet parking. Are you gonna be okay if we don't go? I have to have, so I'm just getting I don't know. This just all affected me in an incredibly unpleasant way. And so I kind of said to her, if I go get this, I don't know if I'm coming back. But she didn't hear that. So I'm really pissed off. So being me, and I'd had a cocktail or two, I decided to leave. So I went to get her wrap and kept on going. I left her there. And so I thought that was the end of it. And so about two weeks later, I'm sitting in this Indian restaurant on La Brea with a friend of mine. And we're in this restaurant because Gordon Ramsay had done this review of it, like ripping the, the chef apart. You're a pig and everything. So I wanted to go to the scene of the crime. So I said, let's go to this Indian restaurant that Gordon Ramsay really gave the shits to and have a, you know, they were serving, they were offering a lot of things after Gordon. Anyway, so we were in this place for that reason. So you see where I'm going with this. We were sitting in there and the menus were up and all of a sudden in walks Zelda Rubenstein with this tall lady that's, you know, obviously a good friend of hers. And I'm like, don't, don't let this happen to me. No, no, no. She sees me. And so, and this guy I'm sitting with barely knows me. So we're sitting there and it's a little, and he knew who she was. She comes over and she folds her arms and she goes, you are the rudest, most horrible man I have ever met in my life. And I said, well, does that mean I jammed your frequencies? I made a joke out of it. And she was furious. And so she stood there for five minutes telling me what a creep I was. And 
that's my story. Do you think I should write that up and make it? Because I, it doesn't make me look good, but I'm just being honest with you. She could really, she just really pissed me off, you know? And I mean, if people uh, have seen Poltergeist and Zelda Rubenstein, I'm imagining this story in my head and it's just sort of making me laugh. <laughs> well, it made me laugh too, but I wasn't laughing in that Indian restaurant. Right. But, but you know, I mean, she doesn't, I can't explain to you what it is about her that just made me see red you know <laughs> and uh my problems with little people didn't end there i have another one with hair bay villages that's kind of the same thing except i didn't leave him anywhere we were in a goodyear blimp for playboy and this was the week that Herbey married that that gold digger that was with him for a year and then as when the year was up she divorced him and took all his money and he goes in and shoots himself I mean, it's a horrible story, but we're up on this thing and, and I'm with my friend, Dan Golden, who was photographing it all. And I don't know what made me do it. I didn't even mean to do it. You know, he's a little guy. So he's walking by and there's like six of us in this, you know, cause dirigibles have, you, you ride in this little thing that's underneath it. If you've ever been in a dirigible, it was, you know, it's really cool. But I accidentally touched his head with my hand. Like I was patting him on the head he lost his shit. How dare you talk to me this way? I'm not a little plate. And I'm like, please, please, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. And his wife, who couldn't stand it, was just like, oh, it's not all that's happened to him. Why don't you tell him about you being picked up and booed? And I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to hear this. And so he wouldn't speak to me the rest of the, the little bride, you know, and I was just, oh my God. So that's another one, you know? So my, my batting average with, with little people is like, so then I'm doing the publicity for uh, From a Whisper to a Scream. And we've got Angelo Rosito in that, who's also a little guy. Fortunately for me, I didn't mess up. And he came to my house and uh, I, we, he, we worked on the press book together, really sweet guy. But my house guest, who was staying with me kind of for months, was a, a director, Michael Armstrong, that directed Mark of the Devil and uh, Horror House. And anyway, and he wrote uh, the screenplay for House of the Long Shadows. So, but he was kind of a, kind of, a, you know, like he, he liked to, he, you know, was kind of wicked. So Angie's sitting in the living room and he goes, can you mind if I use your bathroom? I go, please go on. So he goes into the bathroom and, Dave, and Michael looks over and he goes, how do you think he's gonna pee in your toilet when he's not tall enough to, he said, you know what he's gonna do? I said, what? He's gonna pee in your shower. I said, you, you really think he, and of course, what went down was Angie went in my bathroom and you hear the toilet flushing in a few minutes and he comes back out. But he couldn't wash his hands because he couldn't reach the sink. And he couldn't, there was nothing for him to step up on to use the toilet. So I bet you he did pee in my shower. So anyway, every time I got in that shower for days, I was like, I, I would just like wash it and put all hot water and scrap. It's just like, I don't, it was so weird. So, you know, this is what happens to me around little people, you know, so you've got, and then I met Billy Barty. And the first thing Billy Barty says to me is like, he just finished uh, Masters of the Universe. He said, you know that Dolph Lundgren? He's got a big red pimple on his ass. <laughs> and I'm like, what's wrong with you? And Angie hated Billy. All these people hated each other. I don't know how they made the Wizard of Oz the way they were, well, they were all drunk. But um, he told me that Billy wasn't a nice guy. 
And he said, you know, his car, he, he, can't, he can't touch the brakes. So he has a specially built car. I mean, all this stuff. I mean, but the one thing with Angie, when the, the day I drove him back to where he was living and his whole little apartment had been scaled down for a little person. And I wanted to see it. I said, can I look in your living room? He said, no, nah, you make fun of me. I said, Angie, I promise you, I will, I'm so respectful. He says, no, I have a full grown daughter. And then I have another daughter that's small but you're not gonna see in my, my house. And I said, well, what am I gonna do? But I would have killed to have seen that, you know? Everything scaled down, the light switches and everything, it would have been neat. But uh, anyway, I don't know what got me on the subject. Oh, Zelda Rubenstein. So maybe I should write that story up. I, you know what I was gonna call it? Jammed frequencies. You like that? I, I, I dig that one. Um... If you, I just had a, a, a few more questions if you have a little bit of extra time. I have plenty of time. I, I was going to say, I'm very glad that you mentioned From a Whisper to a Scream because that movie, it sort of has an ensemble cast. Martine Beswick is in it, Clue Gulliger, uh, Lawrence Turney has like a very small role in it, and of course, uh, Vincent Price. But it's odd within the Vincent Price catalog because it's actually a very you know, sort of gory, dark movie. Oh, and Cameron Mitchell as well. Well, here's the thing. Those stories were filmed in Dalton, Georgia, long before uh, Vincent was involved. And uh, I became friends with, and still am, well, Courtney Joyner and I just finished a couple of audio commentaries together. And Courtney wrote from a whisper. Uh, Dan Golden was the camera, was the guy that was taking the pictures and stuff. Um, Jeff Burr was a director. His brother, Bill, was producer. Um, they had, from the cast, uh, from the Georgia shoot, they had Cameron Mitchell, um, Clue Gulliger, his wife, Miriam, um, Terry Kaiser, uh, who played... Um, trying to think who else is in it. Martine and Larry were in the wraparound. I, I was kind of, um, Larry was a great friend and he played the warden. And uh, he signed a still for me standing above Martine while she was being given a lethal injection. He said, I could give her an injection and it wouldn't be lethal. And, you know, he was a character, but um, uh, that was all the wraparound footage and, um, the movie, a lot of people really like it. It's very dark. It's got a lot of, I think for Vincent, that and Witchfinder General and any of those kind of movies, Vincent was from a different school, a different kind of movie. And I feel like did. of those later movies, Vincent was more a fan of like the lighthearted stuff like that. Uh, the Joe Pishkapo Treat Williams Buddy Cop Zombie Comedy. Well, that was, that was made right after. Uh, right, uh, right. But it was, was more lighthearted. Right. I think that's Vincent's type of movie. Well, Vincent was so, Vincent couldn't believe that when he first met Joe, he said, I thought he was a stand-up comic, but it, he's a bodybuilder. Can he act? And I said, Vincent, we don't ask bodybuilders if they can act. Come on, wake up. And, uh, uh, but I don't think Joe ever recovered from that, did he? I mean, the next, the next comic to get into bodybuilding was Carrot Top. I don't think it works for these comics too much to try and get ripped. What do you think? Well, I, I think the track record proves itself, but uh, you, yeah. were you, were you going to say something about Vincent Price and how he felt about uh, like Witchfinder General and- Oh, um, well, yeah. Well, you know, when he did Witchfinder, the violence was really hard for him to digest. And uh, he had so much 
respect for, for Mike Reeves after the fact. While they were filming, there were all kinds of problems. And, uh, oh, you know, let's face it, Witchfinder General is not a horror film. It is a historical drama that Mike Reeves wanted to make with Donald Pleasance. And then AIP got involved and tried to turn it into a Poe film. But the violence in it was more than Vincent was accustomed to. But then so was Theater of Blood. And uh, I think Vincent realized that the type of movies that he enjoyed making had ended. It ended when he did Madhouse for AIP. It ended before we did From a Whisper to a Scream. And then when you realize that your time on earth is limited, I think Vincent just wanted to make a few dollars here and there. And, uh, uh, you know, he was not, I don't think he was happy with where films were going and his, the way he thought they were going. And I have no idea what he would think about what's going on today. I mean, I think he would, if his taste is anything like mine, he would probably admire The Witch and The Lighthouse for their ingenuity and brilliance as far as committing to the screen, you know, literate, intelligent kind of things. But I think he would be at a loss for uh, the torture porn, you know, the Eli Roth movies, the uh, human centipede, you know, I mean, I just think these would be, he's a, of a different world. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think, you know, you did a really great interview with him, the sinister image, which you've got, you know, tons of accolades for. And I, th I think sometimes people forget uh, Vincent Price was actually, he had a lot of uh, high taste in art. He was an art collector, very oh, intellectual. He could have been, could have been an art professor if he hadn't been an actor. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was going to say, uh, you really get the sort of intellectual side out of him in that interview that you did, you sort of talked to him about, well, why does he prefer doing character acting rather than, you know, being the traditional leading man? And he's very articulate and very introspective. Well, no, I mean, first of all, Vincent, like most men that grew up before the Second World War, uh, had really classical educations. I mean, Vincent went to Yale. Joseph Cotton went to Princeton, I think. Uh, Orson Welles was a genius. Uh, a number of actors that uh, worked with Vincent on Broadway were all intellectuals, you know, and he knew most of the most famous people in the world in the 20th century. I mean, he met, uh, well, you know who his mentor was, if you want to connect the dots. Uh, he was mentored in London when he was very young by Sir John Gielgud. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's actually the list of Sir John's uh, uh, students is, is, is very uh, is very colorful uh, because John was one of the reigning princes of the stage in the 30s. And Vincent just started. Then, of course, he did Victoria Regina with Helen Hayes, and that made him a star. But he was playing he was playing a German married to an English queen, you know, who wasn't really English either. She was German as well. Uh, I was gonna. I, I was just gonna say really quickly that uh, there's a lot of actors from those horror movies that actually were, you know, classically trained or were like all huge of them, all it, of on the stage. My favorite horror actor is probably Donald Pleasance, and people forget he was huge on the stage in Britain before. It was, he was Harold Pinter's on screen mm -hmm. on on 
uh, he was he was his what's the voice I want to use for 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 the stage. He was one of his favorite actors to interpret his his plays. Harold Pinter. Um, I saw Pleasance do uh, the Man in the Glass Booth, where he played Adolf Eichmann. You have never seen a tour de force like this in your life. He stood in a glass booth with a Nazi uniform on, and he was terrifying. He was absolutely one of the most brilliant actors. And, you know, I, I would have kidded Christopher if I'd had the chance. You know, Christopher was offered Loomis in Halloween. Yeah, I think Christopher Lee and Cushing, I heard at one point was considered, well, and then they, I, it went Peter, to Pleasant. But, but I mean, come on, I mean, Christopher, I wish I'd known this. I would have made him do it because, you know, there would have answered his money problems. I mean, think of Chris Lee in a franchise. I mean, look what he did when he got in Star Wars. It was like, I wish he had been in a better one and had a better name for it. I mean, call him a count, yes, but oh God, I didn't even talk about it, it's too funny. Uh, but in any case, yeah, both Peter and Christopher wound up in Star Wars. And of course, Christopher had his moment of glory with Lord of the Rings. So going back to Europe was the right thing for him to do. Uh, but in any case, yeah, I know most of the actors that did these movies in the 30s and 40s all were very highly educated, well-trained classical actors. And that's what made them so Lionel Atwell, George Zuko. John Carradine. John Carradine. Well, John's the problem with John, who I knew pretty well. John was to have been my next interview after Vincent. We had already gone up to Santa Barbara and done a whole kind of uh, thing. But with John, he became besotted of John Barrymore at a very impressionable age and never tried to act himself. Only for John Ford did he ever rise to the occasion, in my opinion, because all of John's work that you're familiar with is kind of parodies of John Barrymore. Now rolling the eyes and doing, I watched um, uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance the other day, and John is just kind of over the top there. But in Stagecoach, he gives a really good performance before, and he's, he's devoid of some of the mannerisms that, that he that were Barrymore. The, the other actor, that did, as well. Well, the other, well, brilliant. The other actor that did Barrymore until he knew better was Frederick March. I, I, I did an audio, audio commentary for Sign of the Cross the other day, the DeMille. And I kind of, everyone's going, oh, Frederick March is giving, I said, oh, he's doing, he's doing John Barrymore. He's in his Barrymore period, calm down, you know, cause that movie's a hoot. And, uh, but see, this is the thing. I haven't really been doing audio commentary for too many horror movies. This, How to Make a Monster is the first one I've done in a little while, which I had to do. You ever seen How to Make a Monster? You know, I have not seen that one, but I'm familiar oh, with it. I used it. to see it's it, yeah. AIP, it's a backstage AIP where a kind of uh, uh, portly makeup artist creates a pancake makeup that makes teenage boys his slave. You see where I'm going with this. <laughs> this is why I was summoned to do that. And then after they got me, they said, well, you're not gonna say anything too outrageous, are you? And I went, look, when you hire me, you've gotta know what you're getting. And, but I calmed down a little with it, but I, I you know, I mean, uh, when John Ashley sings this song, you gotta have E-U, you gotta have wow. I, I would love to have wow. 
how often do you have wow in your life you know probably I, never where's that wow you know so uh you know i kind of i ended the commentary with that so i have no you know we i never they tell me not to read these reviews, but I always do. And I love the bad ones when I get them, you know, because usually it's someone, you know, I always separate the inter the reviews between the people that are paid to write reviews and customer, never read customer reviews because they, they're, what do they know? They're customers. Can I comment on that real quick? I always find it amazing when I find IMDb reviews or Amazon reviews for a movie like Satan's Cheerleaders, which you did a commentary for, and they're like, this movie was so horrible. It was so low budget. I'm like, why did <laughs> you buy a movie horrible. called Satan's Cheerleaders? Like, I you know. knew what you were getting into. <laughs> I know. Remember, I had to sit through that thing. With I, lo David I love that movie. I love it. Did I don't care like what anyone David says. And I said about it? <laughs> Did you listen to the commentary? I've, I've listened to most of it. Well, that's more than I've done. So I never <laughs> listen. I never listen to the commentaries I do. The only one I've listened to all the way through is The Fly with David Hedison, because that was a lot of fun. And uh, my other favorites, uh, they're re-releasing one I did with Eric Roberts for Runaway Train. They're putting that on Kino Lower for March of next year. So a lot of the commentaries I did for Twilight Time are being bought by other companies. You did one with Barbara Still for the I great Silent Scream. I well, yeah. I did, well, there's an interesting story. I did Silent Scream for this uh, these Olsen brothers. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. That did Code Red and Scorpion. Anyway, uh, it's the only thing I've done for them. No, I think I did something else. No, I can't remember. I think I did the Monster Club for them as well and Tower of Evil. But I had a problem with them because uh, they did not put my name or pay me or anything for Silent Scream. Now, I have never done anything on a DVD that I didn't get credited for except from them. And they will regret it down the road. I, I actually saw Silent Scream before it ever came out on DVD. I had rented a VHS of it and I watched it with my dad because I'm like, oh, Barbara Still, she's awesome. And, you know, as a teenager, I just, I thought she was really attractive in a very unconventional way. So I wanted to see it. And then uh, I also wanted to see Cameron Mitchell. And all my dad said when we watched it is, is that Leave Schreiber from the Doritos commercials? <laughs> and I was like, who? Well, you know, uh, that was a weird commentary to do because Barbara's only in the last 10 minutes. So I decided that since she's not in most of the movie, and here we have her in the studio, I would ask her all kinds of questions about her career up until she's on camera, then I would talk about the movie. But, and that's how we planned to do it. And halfway through it, Barbara looks up and she goes, oh, no, I can't do this. It's such a lie. Let's talk about the movie. And I go, uh, uh, Barbara, I'm not ready to talk about the movie. No, that's your job. Talk about the movie. I said, Barbara, I don't know anything about the movie. And she goes, well, why not? It's your job to know about the movie. This is all on what we're talking. And I'm like, stop, stop. All right, we're going to go back. All right. Get me the IMDb thing. So I had to look up all these unknown actors and who they were and what they did so that I could put it because she halfway through she changes her mind. Oy vey, you know. So anyway, uh, I'm about to do another with her on Wednesday. I can't tell you the title right now, but it's it's a it's a it's a good one. 
And I think the fans will be happy with it. But, you know, I did Curse of the Crimson Altar, Silent Scream, Nightmare Castle, and uh, what was the other one I did? Um, I know I'm missing one. Well, the one that I'm about to do makes four. Uh, yeah, I, I did two for uh, Severin and uh, Curse of the Crimson Altar. I did it for a UK and then Kino Lober bought it and released it as Crimson Cult. And that movie's a disgrace because you got Karloff and Christopher Lee and Barbara Steele and they have no scenes together. <laughs> I mean, what is wrong with this? Are we the only people that know what, what should be done and why it's not being done? That, that's that how I felt when I saw Scream and Scream again. And there, the, the, the big stars didn't have scenes together. I no, think Lee and, and, and well, Bryce did. But... Said, I don't, what scream am I? Is what, you know, <laughs> well, well, you know, I hear that, that's one of Fritz Lang's favorite, favorite well, movies. Okay. All right. Let's take, let's take that step by step. When Fritz Lang said that, he was 100. He was blind and deaf. So good luck with watching Scream and Scream again. He probably saw Kiss and the Phantom of the Park and confused them. Another Gordon Hessler classic. But uh, no, um, no, that, I mean, uh, Scream and Scream again, I've done audio commentaries twice for it. And I wish I had just left it to Tim Lucas because Tim Lucas has some very special knack. We're very, we're old friends, Tim and I. And he has some very special knack of finding research on movies that I have trouble finding. Because with this pandemic, the libraries are closed. So I have to rely on the internet and that's no good. It's a minefield of misinformation. So, you know, everything I do under this pandemic, I have to just do the best I can. So the, the last two things I was gonna mention were uh, you did a series called Haunted Hollywood, and I, I'm just interested. That was for Charles Band. Yes. Well, well, I'm interested. Uh, so you've known people like John Carradine, Cameron Mitchell. A lot is sort of made of, oh, there's this sort of uh, almost like a dark side to Hollywood. And we sort of look at actors like Cameron Mitchell and John Carradine as having fallen from grace uh, by the 80s. No, it's uh, called alimony. That's what it's about marrying all these chicks. And then you have to keep paying for it forever. Cameron could never, Cameron could never get out of debt. When we did- I heard he was big into uh, horse race gambling. He was, as a matter of fact, you, 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 you anticipated my, my little story. When we did From a Whisper to a Scream, we had a big uh, award ceremony with Dr. Donald A. Reed. And of course he was pissed off. He had to give me an award so he misspelled my name, he mispronounced my name. He's such an asshole, he's dead, so he's a dead asshole. But in any case, Cameron, they rented a limousine for Cameron to go down to collect this award. When they rented the limousine, they didn't realize that the bar that was in the back was fully loaded. And by the time Cameron got it, so was he. Because the limousine went from the theater, instead of taking him home, it took him to Santa Anita where he lost a lot of money that he didn't have drinking and doing playing the horses. And now he was, look, he had a great time with his life. Um, and when he was running away from all his ex-wives, that's why he was in Europe making this. Why Larry, well, Lawrence Tierney went over because Larry had had bad luck with the law because of his drinking. And he went over to Europe and made a number of pictures, but Larry was a great guy. See, but, but, but Larry, it sort of has a nice ending to it because he gets famous doing Seinfeld and, and Reservoir Dogs later in yeah, life. Yeah, but he was still Larry. I mean, he was <laughs> still like, 
you know, uh, when Larry was staying with me, famous story, we go over to Hughes Market that was right across the street. And well, you never knew what Larry was going to do. You know what he'd do to me? He would get a grocery cart and I would be behind and he would pick glass bottles of like spaghetti sauce and toss them over his shoulder in hopes that I would catch them. We're in a store. And then he would rent, he'd see a pretty girl and he would take the grocery cart and run it into her. And she'd go, whoa, what was that? And she goes, I'm so sorry. My name's Larry. Today's my birthday. And I don't know, I'm just all fingers. Such a pretty lady. May I, would you have lunch with me? This is my friend, David. And I'm like there, honey, I'm so sorry. And, and you know, she wound up having lunch, a perfect stranger. So no, Larry was a character. Larry was a character. You know, what can I say? Many stories about him, many stories. In fact, when he did the Seinfeld, he was staying with me. And every night he would come home with all of Jerry's office supplies in his bag. He'd take all the paper clips, all the pins. Just, it was like klepto, he couldn't help it. And then when the show was over, we returned a lot of it. That was just like thousands of paper clips. It's just Larry being a kleptomaniac, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, I miss all these people. These were, you know, we don't have characters like that. Well, we do, but I just probably don't know them. I, I was going to say that brings me to the last person I wanted to ask you about because I think he is criminally underrated. He sort of connects the art house world to the world of sort of B-horror. I'm talking about Curtis Harrington, who when I watched his horror movies, I was like, is this a gay guy that's afraid of women or does he revere women? He's very interesting. Well, Curtis is old school. You know, he reveres the women that are larger than life because in the old days, Gay men identified with women that were that were rough around the edges, that had problems with men, that had problems with drink, that were betrayed by men. The man that got away, uh, Judy Garland, you know, being mistreated by men, alcohol and drugs and men. And Tennessee Williams did the same thing. But th the problem was, in the 40s, people like Tennessee Williams couldn't write about gay characters or, or Edward Albee with Virginia Woolf. So they incorporated their own idiosyncrasies with the female characters that they kind of wrote in cipher, like Proust did with Remembrance of Things Past. The female characters are really uh, disguised. They're the guys. They're basically Marcel Proust or uh, when Lucchino Visconti was directing Streetcar Named Desire, Tennessee was like fretting over it. And Lucchino, he said, you know, Tennessee, you are Blanche. And he goes, oh, you figured that out. So, yeah, I think that, uh, and they just revived Boys in the Band, which is very interesting to watch that play reimagined and kept in the 1968 and realize how different it was for gay men in 1968 as opposed to 2020. And a lot of things are different, a lot of things are better, a lot of things are not better. And uh, if you really wanna see where it's all gone, look at that and see where we are now. Uh, a lot of things different, a lot of things the same. And But I do believe one thing that's changed is that younger gay men, millennials, are not looking at women to identify with. You know, they like Lady Gaga, they like, 
or they did like Madonna. I don't know. A lot of people are like, what? Madonna is an old woman now. Get away. Uh, you know, whatever. But um, it's changed, if that makes sense to you. You know, that we don't look at, at uh, suicidal women as if they're, they're our own. That has changed. And for the better. So... In terms of uh, Harrington, since you knew oh, him- Oh, about Curtis? Yeah, well, Curtis was uh, an avant-garde filmmaker that kind of came into his own around the same time as Kenneth Anger. In fact, they made films together. Uh, Curtis appears in Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. Uh, Kenneth, well, Kenneth never did anything with Curtis. The problem with those two, I was friends with both of them and they hated each other because Curtis became a wealthy working director making episodes of Dynasty, directing, associating, uh, being associate producer for Jerry Wald. He very much became the system. So Kenneth had no use for him because he abandoned the avant-garde for commercial films. So Kenneth remained always broke and always an experimental filmmaker while Curtis had a big house in the hills and threw parties and was basically a socialite. So of course it was the grasshopper and the ant. So one didn't like the other, but towards the end they admired who they were. And you know, uh, Kenneth made a huge spectacle of himself at Curtis's funeral. And I was living up in, in San Francisco and I couldn't come down. So I had a friend go for me and it was a nightmare. It was really, well, because Kenneth, brought a cameraman and kissed Curtis's dead corpse on the, on the forehead and interrupted Jack Larson, who was giving the eulogy. You know, Jack Larson, the openly gay actor that had played Jimmy Olsen. And he, of course, was living with his wealthy lover, James Bridges, who directed a lot of movies. And Jack now inherited that huge house. So you know, money, 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 money. But uh, yeah, uh, Curtis was very much uh, a very sophisticated, interesting person who made very stylish horror movies. But people like Shelley Winters and Debbie Reynolds and uh, Simone Signore, he admired older women who were divas. He loved Marlena Dietrich. But that's, you know, he, he was a gay man that liked what gay men liked of that period, you know, Garbo, Dietrich, Tallulah Bankhead, uh, uh, actresses, and of course, the whole aging thing with these women. And that, that's where I think a lot of gay men kind of identified with that because, you know, getting old is not cool. Of course, that's not a gay thing. That's a Hollywood thing. It's so just, what, I, I'm just curious, what's your favorite Harrington movie? Um, Night Tide. Oh, the Dennis Hopper. Well, that's that I should have guessed. Well, as a matter of fact, Nicholas Reffin uh, put out the most gorgeous, definitive uh, Blu-ray release of it. And my interview with Curtis is on it. My whole hour long interview that Nicholas put. I love Nicholas. I, I like the Neon Demon. And you know, I'm one of the few that did. And um, so I'm very pleased that he he likes a lot of the same things I do. And uh, and I liked I like Drive and uh, you know, what can I say? But he's a big fan. So closing out here, I, I got to ask, and I think this is the perfect note to close out on. Uh, you were friends with uh, Russ Myers, who had a love of showing uh, big breasted oh, well, women. Was a, Russ Meyer was the only man in Hollywood that did it all. 
He wrote his films, directed his films, distributed his films, edited his films, photographed his films, cast his films. There is no other filmmaker that's done that. And he took me out to dinner the night before we did our show. And uh, he was just fabulous. I mean, he took me to his house. And I mean, I mean, I, he was being really cool. And his house, all he had like bras dipped in, uh, that had been mounted like trophies, dipped in bronze like a 44 double D cup. He had that as a, as a like you would, like you'd put up a, uh, an elk's head. His trophies were bras, you know? And when I met him, he was like 68 or 69 or maybe even maybe 70. And he said, yeah, you know, David, I got this broad that comes to the house. And, you know, she kind of throws me from one end of the room to the other because she's built like a brick shit house. And, Wow, we have such great sex. And I just mean, like, I, he's awesome, you know, just awesome. And uh, we had a really good time. I'm, I, you know, I was very lucky to have known these people, but I was here at the right time. I, I was going to say, I think he said to you at one point, or maybe it was Ken Russell actually, that said, uh, every day is Halloween. That was in, Ken uh, Hollywood. Every day what, is Halloween. What does that mean? Well, uh, Ken wrote that line for his movie, Valentino where he was using that as a metaphor for Hollywood. But I think what he meant is that, well, well come on. I mean, if you've ever been to Hollywood, we're, we celebrate Halloween 24 seven. We have two Halloween stores that don't close that are owned by Rob Zombie on Magnolia and call Halloween Town, one and two. Is that Check in Burbank? Out. Yeah, it's on Magnolia Avenue in Burbank and Rob Zombie owns them. So they're not gonna close. I think that's what everyone loves about Hollywood. It, it, when I was there, it did feel like, yeah, every day is Halloween here. <laughs> every day is. And I mean, someone's dressed up as someone's pretending to be someone they're not somewhere. <laughs> Whether that's Halloween or Hollywood, I don't know which, probably both. But no, I mean, I've been very lucky to have uh, uh, been in Hollywood and been around the people that I've been around. And uh, and I'm just so glad that I'm able to share all this because, you know, we're all here for such a short time. And that's why I'm glad, you know, that I've, I've done what I've done. And I've got a documentary I'm working on, uh, which uh, I just started, which will be the first one I've done myself, which is going to be uh, about the Pope films and Vincent Price and my friendship with Vincent Price. And the fact that I literally know most of the people that have been in those movies. And uh, no one's ever really done this. So I think people will be interested. Well, how can my listeners uh, keep up with what you're doing and the documentaries? Well, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, if you type in sinisterimage.com, it will connect you to my DelVal archives page. I have a DelVal archives at something.org, Christ, I'm so Ill, Ill prepared for giving you all this information, but I'm sinisterimage.com, uh, my Facebook page. Um, I have a page uh, for the DelVal archives, which you can type it in, and Full Moon, Haunted Hollywood, my series. My series for David Dakota's Rapid Heart is uh, Camp Grindhouse, and a kind of gay show called Ghoul, Please. Uh, and they're just mainly very short little pieces that I recorded on public domain movies, uh, which I did, you know, basically off the top of my head, you'll be pleased to know. And they gave me like 60 titles at a WAP and I didn't 
I didn't have a problem. So we we did one at Dark Delicacies, and the man that runs the store said, "Jesus, David, how do you know all this stuff? And, you know, why you're a film historian? You know, I once asked Vincent about his acting, and he said, "I said, how did you learn all these the lines for uh, he was doing Gilbert and Sullivan?" And he looked at me and says, "David, I learned my lines because that's my profession. I'm an actor." You know, him telling me that was like, of course I know you're an actor, but I was just trying to figure out how you learn all these lines. Cause you know, that was always my biggest nightmare when I was attempting to act was trying to remember all this, all this dialogue. I still don't know how some people do it, you know, well, but they do, whether idiot cards, perhaps, maybe they even have a little microphone in there, who knows, but I better learn my lines for my next lifetime movie as Cameron the barista goes into another, another unhappy situation, who knows? But anyway, yeah, and I'm um, gonna finish my third book for Bear Manor. And I have a documentary from Shudder, two actually, coming up. I don't know what the final titles will be, but that and Skin and Time Warp are the two documentaries I did for Danny Wolf and Paul, Paul Fishburne. And those are out now. And I have a documentary with David Gregory's Severon company called Tales of the Uncanny about uh, anthology horror movies. I'm in that too. And I'm an electric boogaloo about canon films. And uh, I'm missing one, but I can't remember. I've just, I've really done, you know, COVID or not, I've worked every month on something. Isn't that interesting? You probably have too. It's like, Everyone's oh, this has been home. a productive period for me with these shows. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. How many have you done since March? I do three to four shows a week. Wow. <laughs> so I've been very busy. And you know what? I'm going to have to have you on again in the future because we did not <laughs> even get... We did not even get to your uh, encounters with uh, Timothy Leary and Anton LaVey. So that's for next time. Yeah, well, you know, uh, uh, I can't believe I told you that Zelda Ruba. I'll be anxious to know. Let me know what feedback you get, because I should write that up and include it in my third Bear Manor book. But, you know, we always and maybe this is not maybe this is maybe I'm thinking about this in the wrong manner. If a story does not necessarily present you in a great light but it's still a fun story, you go ahead and tell it. Well, I just did, so we'll find out. But you know, I don't come off too well in that and I should have been more of a gentleman with her, but I didn't do it. So what are we gonna do about it? I think it's funny. Jam frequencies. Well, thank you again, David Delvale for coming on Parallax Views. Well, thank you for having me and let me know. I'll come back and hopefully have more, let's hope, more work, more great stories. And maybe you can tell me what you've been up to as well, you know, but stay in touch with me and let me know how this went. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. This will be the first in a few episodes I have for you to celebrate the spooky season and Halloween. Hopefully you enjoyed my conversation with film historian David DelVille. And as always, if you can, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Due to some of the health issues I mentioned in the intro to this episode, I actually ended up getting behind on releasing the second part of our George H.W. Bush series with these long wars, but I will have 
the second part out, hopefully by the end of this month. And there will also be a few other goodies coming out on the Patreon page. You can support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier with a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between. And at the $10 and $15 tiers, you get a producer's credit shoutout which leads us to the producer's credit shoutouts for this edition of the program. Producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Catherine, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, well, join those listeners in supporting me at the $10 or $15 tiers of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Your support is what will help keep this show going. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.